Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. If you're very familiar with the historical portions of the Old Testament, you know whose life uh, we're going to. A little bit about the man David and what is recorded by the Holy Spirit regarding him. Uh, 2 Samuel 22. And when you get there, if you'll stand, we'll read the first several verses. Second Samuel 22, and we'll begin in verse 1. And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song, In the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies, and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior Thou savest me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And He did hear my voice out of His temple. And my cry did enter into His ears. Let's pray. Father, we know Your Word is blessed. It is tried and true. It is eternal. But, Lord, we ask for Your help and power this morning to teach us from these words once again. Lord, we live in an unthankful world. Every one of us possesses a nature that instinctively recoils from the idea of praise, giving thanks. Father, I pray You'd help us to learn these lessons this morning, that we might be better equipped to use our tongues to worship You. Thank You, Lord, for Your inspired Word. Thank You, Lord, it's still just as powerful as when it was given. And we thank You, Lord, You give us this truth and the opportunity to meet in a free country this morning. Oh, Lord, help us. I pray You'd lift up the downcast today. I pray You'd help set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. I pray, Lord, You'd help with our perspective of time and get our eyes on eternity and to see this life as the passing vapor that it is. Make us more fit, Lord, for that day. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's helpful to begin by asking the question, what uh, time period in David's life was this psalm actually written? Uh, In fact, if you notice there in verse 1, what is he praising the Lord for? He spake these words unto the Lord, In the last sentence, he delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. Now, obviously, if you know David's life, the whole issue with running from Saul had been very early on in his career uh, before he ever reached the throne over all Israel. Uh, But yet, 
if we look chronologically where this appears in 2 Samuel, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, this, where it's put in by the Holy Spirit, where this chapter actually shows up, is uh, very much later on in David's life. Chronologically, as you go through the book of 2 Samuel, and then you come to chapter 22, uh, this is way after Saul's death. It's after David's uh, zenith of rulership and things had begun to decline a little bit. It's after his notorious affair and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. It's after Absalom's rebellion and his reign and death. It's after David's been restored back to Jerusalem as king. And then, of course, after that comes the treachery of Sheba, who's called the son of Belial, son of the devil. And he is uh, disposed from his little mini-kingdom and, and put to death. And then after that comes three years of famine, in which seven more of Saul's sons had to be put to death because of their treatment of the Gibeonites. And then after that comes the war with the Philistines, which we see in chapter 21 in which uh, the four giant brothers of Goliath were slain. Uh, by the way, one of them, if you read the record, had six fingers on each hand, and six toes on each foot. And that was uh, quite a prospect. You talk about an intimidating fellow to come against. And uh, then comes this psalm. So apparently, David is singing a song that is very familiar to him. He's singing something here that he'd actually originally penned some time ago, and that it's kind of returning again and again in his life as the Lord continued to display his unchanging character. Now again, if you read that last chapter, uh, David is nearly killed by one of those giants. Now I need to do, I'm going to give an object lesson real quick. I'm going to have my son come up here. All right, let's just get a visual. How many of you remember how tall Goliath was? Nine, nine, right? Six cubits in a span, depending on what a span is. Okay, so my son here is a roughly six, he's catching up to me, six one-ish. With his hands in the air, he's about eight foot. Okay, this chair is about 18 inches off the ground, so what does that give us? Okay, about nine foot eight. All right, now stand on that and put that on your fist, up in the air. No, no, your fist, there, stand up, stand up. Now, all the way, all the way, all the way. All right, now, David probably was not six foot three, okay? Anybody want to do battle with that guy? Especially when his fingers are the size of sausages and some of these guys have six on each hand. Okay, that's a scary prospect. All right, thank you. You can, you can sit down. I, th I, think it's good, I think it's good to get a visual on that. But you can picture this guy. Okay, he's coming against David. He thinks, it says, he thought to have slain David. So uh, you can picture this is one of either the brother or the half-brothers of Goliath of Gath. And do you think this guy knows who David is? And you see him breathing out threatenings and slaughter to him? Come here, you little chicken-hearted midget. I'm going to put a, I'm going to take care of you. Don't think you, I forgot what you did to my brother. Okay, he's going to, he's going to finish him off. And then David's brawny nephew, Abishai, one of these sons of Zeruiah, David often said were too hard for him. Zeruiah was David's sister. This was his nephew. And uh, Abishai comes along and dispatches this giant. And then the consensus of the army is that David shouldn't be going to war in person any longer. They said, you're going to extinguish the light of Israel. Uh, you need to go ahead and be done fighting these kind of wars. Now, I think it's remarkable that at this point in his life, David's still going to the front lines. 
I mean, he's no longer a young man. He's no spring chicken. Now, personally, I wonder if David had a healthy fear of staying home in the palace while wars were going on. Remember what happened to him earlier? It seems that David had made a resolution in his mind. I'm going to be in the fray so long as I can. Well, that's commendable. Maybe David, when he writes this, is contemplating his first official military skirmish. When as a young boy, he he slays the defiant Philistine with a sling and a stone. That was his first act under the auspices of the armies of Israel. And you'll remember the scene. This was the uh, sunrise of his ascent to national fame. And that particular exploit really had two major effects in his life. One was it made him a household name in the whole country. The other one is it made Saul absolutely hate his guts and want to kill him. Uh, Before you think fame is a good thing, think twice. Now here's David as a seasoned warrior, an aging king in the twilight years of his existence. And now he's fighting the last battle with his hands as a soldier with another giant from Gath. And he comes away more than a conqueror once again. Only you'll remember the first time, he was the only one willing to go. But this next time, he's got a whole army of men that are ready to fight. Yes, uh, things had changed in Israel a great deal. Now eventually, with some minor adjustments, these words become part of the only divinely inspired hymnal. And we know this passage elsewhere is Psalm chapter 18. It's almost identical. And this is one of many, many places in the Scriptures that can accurately be called or summed up as a song of thanksgiving. And they don't only occur in the Psalms. Uh, Moses wrote a song, didn't he? David did, both in and out of the Psalms. Deborah and Barak wrote a song of thanksgiving. Asaph, even the sons of Korah. And others we could speak of have their own personal thanksgiving hymn recorded as part of the inspired Word of God. Now, I think that begs the question, why are these things recorded? Now, we don't always know that infallibly, but I would encourage you, as you're going through the Bible, don't go through it just to check off a list. I sprinkled a little bit of spiritual fairy dust on myself now. We want to go through with the, with the desire to understand, and one of the ways you do that is asking questions of the text. Who is this talking to? What's the point? How did this happen? What were the good things? What were the bad things? What does this have to do with me? And so one of the applicational questions, I think, as we look at these songs of thanksgiving, why did God give these to us? Listen, it's got to be more than just the bare command that we are supposed to give thanks. I mean, if that was the case, all we would need is what is penned in 1 Thessalonians. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Pretty, pretty basic. The will of God is for you to be thankful, and you are supposed to do it. Have you ever thought about your need to give thanks to the Lord? but you really don't like to admit you're not sure how? It's okay to say that. That's one of the reasons these passages are given. I mean, you know that thanksgiving should go beyond the two words of acknowledgement that say just thank you. 
Although that's a good start. What is Thanksgiving? Well, the most of our country, Thanksgiving is a day on the calendar. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good day. Thanksgiving, when you talk about it, is, is a meal, maybe. Or uh, maybe it's some kind of payment that's due. When somebody does something nice, it's kind of like they send us a bill, you know. Uh, our president, after he freed those basketball players from China recently, uh, he texted out his invoice, didn't he? Well, uh, now you owe me a thank you and it better be public. <laughs> uh, which he was right, but I guess it's a little strange to tell the whole country about that. I don't know. First of all, though, the true Christian is the only person who can give thanks in the highest sense. That's because the Christian is the only one that recognizes the ultimate source from which every good gift comes. I mean, let's say you, you have two people merging into traffic, heavy traffic. Uh, you have a Christian and an atheist in different cars, and, and both of them have a kind motorist behind them. Are you ever happy about that? And they back off and they, they let you in. And uh, let's say both of these people, they, they merge into traffic and they wave in their mirror. They say, thank you. But see, for the atheist, it stops there. He says, thank you, but maybe he's thinking something along the lines of karma. I mean, I've done this to other people, so really, I kind of, guess, had this coming. I deserve it. And well, what is the real Christian's thought process? Thank you. And thank you, God, for sending that particular blessing. And beyond that, thank you, God, for sending that particular blessing to an undeserving wretch like me. You see, real thanksgiving goes to the source there. I've mentioned the illustration before. It's like thanking your faucet for the water while forgetting your well exists. People are like faucets. God's the well. Now, he's the one where the real water comes from. Now, secondly, though, praise and thanksgiving really are intertwined. I know they have slightly different definitions, but... If you trace them through the Scriptures, you really can't separate them. A thankful heart is naturally going to break out in praise. And somebody who's praising God is going to be giving thanks. They just, they just go together. How about the New Testament word? I know we're in the Old Testament, but the New Testament word translated thanksgiving. is that, Believe it or not, it's where the word Eucharist comes from. If I said to you this Thursday, my family is going to be celebrating the Eucharist, uh, some of you would get nervous. You'd go look at the sign outside. Uh, but actually, the word Eucharist is a transliteration of the Greek word, Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. See, it's a good word, it's just had a bad meaning attached to it. Thanksgiving, really, here's what it boils down to. It's a Godward expression of joy. It's sort of a turning the faucet on, to pour out a heart of joy to God. That's the highest form of what thanksgiving is. Now, these passages are given partly as sort of a template. I don't mean a rote repetition. The Lord had something to say about vain, repetitious prayers. But uh, what these passages do is give us some guidelines, some ideas, some practical helps to assist us as we grow in our ability to give thanks to the Lord, to express joy to Him. So we're just going to take some basic principles out of this that I hope uh, can follow us 
out the door during this week of what we call Thanksgiving. All right, first of all, verse 1. Notice, David spake unto the Lord the words of this song. I'll begin by pointing out the obvious. Thanksgiving is a verbal expression. It says he spake words. Now, what's my point? First of all, it's not merely feeling thankful. It's not called thank-feeling. It doesn't say in everything, feel thanks. It says in everything, give thanks. So merely sitting here overflowing with joy, with no communication with your Maker, is not thanksgiving. He wants more than that. Secondly, I think applicationally, I think you can make a good case. I'm not going to do it this morning. You can trace it on your own. But a good case can be made for the need of speaking to God out loud. Now, I know God can hear us in our mind. I get that. I'm not saying He can't. And I know sometimes that's all we can do. But if you follow prayer, thanksgiving, through the Scriptures, you often find people speaking audibly. Uh, Tell me, why is it we know what Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he spoke it. Why is it we have so many other prayers recorded? Because it was spoken audibly. Maybe you've noticed your mind wanders a whole lot less when your prayers are verbal versus only mental. Imagine if we came here this morning and, and uh, I announced the hymn. And all of us just sat here in dead silence. That'd be odd. But you, everyone said, well, no, I'm, I'm just thinking praise to God is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm thinking. You might say, well, how about we verbalize that a little, right? Again, I'm not saying God can't hear our thoughts. I know He can. But I would challenge you, test it in your own life and see if that's not true. I think things like Thanksgiving, if you can get alone to God and talk to Him out loud. Here, can I tell you something else that reminds you of? He's real. He's not imaginary friend Bruce hiding in the closet. He's the God of heaven and earth who has a personality, an emotion, an intellect, and a will just like you that can be cultivated. He's a living person, capital P. I think it's helpful to talk to him like that out loud. And it says... In the day that the Lord had delivered him, this happened. That suggests that God Himself is who David went to first to pour out His joy. What's our honest tendency? Something really good happens. I better text this to the Western United States. I better post this on Facebook. I better call grandma and tell the neighbor. I'll even talk to my dog. Something bad happens, same thing. Text the western half of the United States, put it on Facebook. Ask for help. Other people can't solve it for us. Well, I guess I just have to pray. I'm not saying don't share it. But I would suggest this. You take your joys, you take the thanksgiving, you take the things God does that you see and the victories He gives... Go to Him first and pour it out at His throne, and I guarantee you there'll be plenty left over to give to others. 
But the opposite is not necessarily true. Oftentimes we pour it out to everybody else and think, well, God knows, and we say nothing to Him. No. No. He's worthy to hear it from us first. All right, now verses 2 and 3. And uh, by the way, the, the adult Sunday school, I had the two teen boys sit in. Uh, there's good reasoning for it. I'll not get into it. But we sat there in Eric's class this morning. Well, I'll tell you, we were, uh, we're on the imprecatory Psalms this week in the boys' class. And I wanted the other boys to get to go through this too. Imprecatory Psalms, by the way, side note, are the Psalms where David's praying, David and others are praying God's judgment down. It's important to know where those fit in the overall scheme of Scripture. And so anyway, P.S., my point was, we stayed in the adult class and really uh, set the tone for what we're talking about here. Listen, a big part of thanksgiving, here's what it is. It's rehearsing who and what the Lord is to you specifically. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock and Him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. How many adjectives can you come up with to describe the Lord's dealing with you? How many metaphors would it take to explain how faithful and true and tender He has been on your behalf? When was the last time you spent honest energy trying to come up with a list like that for yourself? Did you know Thanksgiving takes effort? It's not like a drive-thru. All the Big Mac, fries, large Coke, oh and thank you. On with my life. Thanksgiving that worships the Lord takes some effort. I mean, think about it. If somebody writes you a card, a thank you card, you open this big card up, and you open it, and it says, thank you, period. I mean, what do you think? Man, I suppose they really meant that from the bottom of their soul. I Excuse me while I go hide in the closet and cry for a good hour. Why? We, we even want fellow sinners to put some effort into being thankful to us. Why? We were made in the image of God. What do you think it means to the Lord when our thank you is, oh, thank you. Let's see, what's on Fox News? Seriously. So, rehearsing who and what God is to us specifically. Did you know one of the reasons, one of the main reasons God made language in the first place? Why? It's to give you and I a vehicle through which we can offer sacrifices of praise to Him. Do you understand that's the highest use of language? The highest use of the vehicle we call language is to honor the living God. That's the best use of language that exists. What's the most important word in any language? I would say it's God or Jesus Christ. In any language, the equivalent of those words are the most important. Uh, What's the most important phrases in any language? It's describing who God is and what He's like. Now, did you notice in those verses we read the frequent use of the word my? He doesn't say He's a rock. He's a deliverer. Well, that's true. He says He's my rock. 
my deliverer, my fortress, my savior. You see, thanksgiving isn't just objective truth. Yes, these things are true. But it's taking objective truth and making it possessive truth. I remember Galatians 2.20, Paul doesn't write, Christians are crucified with Christ, nevertheless they live. That's true. What example does he set? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And by the way, he's not only talking about himself, what he's challenging you and I to do is grab a hold of that. And say it's not just true, it's true of me. It's true of me. Expressing thanksgiving to God takes His character and makes it personal. And we can do this. Lord, You are my... Take some time and fill in that blank sometime. Let me think of the terms in the list here. My rock... An immovable fixed foundation underneath my feet. Rather than the shifting sands of philosophy or the quest for pleasure or some false religious system or anything else. He's my fortress. Walls of protection around me. My deliverer, the one who makes me to escape. A shield. Uh, the word shield there is talking about the small shield. It's often translated buckler. There were the big shields they hid behind, and then there were the little shields that the swordsmen and archers carried when they went forward to war. So the picture of the Lord as the shield or buckler saying, He's my defense while I'm running right into the arrows flying at me. You think that was a poignant picture in David's mind? You think he saw some arrows sometime? He's the horn of my salvation. That's figurative language. In the Jew's mind, a horn was a picture of power, of authority. You look at an animal with a large horn, it meant don't mess with that guy. So, when it talks about the horn of my salvation, he's saying he's the power of my salvation. The strength of the promises lies in who he is. He's a high tower and refuge. A lofty, inaccessible hiding place. You ever just want to run away? I have. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you think, Lord God Almighty, can I just grow some wings and go somewhere? Where do you want? Anywhere. Doesn't matter. I want to fly away from the problems. I want to fly away from the criticism. I want to fly away from the perplexity, the stress. I want to fly away from the bills that keep coming in the mail. I want to fly away from people. Huh? Be honest. What's the, what's the preciousness of that? Listen, it's important to get away sometimes. I'm not saying it's not. But you can go to some hidden island in the middle of the Pacific with nobody there except exotic turtles and fish and yourself and still not find a hiding place. Do you know why? Because for the Christian, He is the hiding place. What do you think the psalmist meant when he said, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. 
You see, he's writing from experience that no matter what's coming against me, I know I've got a high tower and it's my high tower and it's my fortress and I never have to open the door and say, what are you doing in here? Oh, I guess this room's taken. Isn't that the beauty of God being infinite? Perfectly accessible to all of His children as though nobody else existed. You know Him like that. You can cultivate that. My high tower, my fortress, the place I go to escape is not Maui, it's God. He's a Savior. He's the one who makes me free. And what else? He, my friend? My counselor? My great high priest? The hearer of my prayers? The one who saves my tears in a bottle? You see, it's great therapy for the weary soul to go through this kind of list. Here's what the Lord is to me. You see, it's not that other people don't matter. But friends, listen. The only way to stay really spiritually sane and fruitful in this life is to have a place of quietness with God alone. And I'm not talking about a closet or a physical place. I'm talking about a relation to Him knowing. He wants that kind of closeness with us. Listen, people are going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. People in here are going to let you down. He'll never let you down. He doesn't change. So out of that rehearsing of God's personal affection for me, or for you, a deliberate choice is made and declared. Look at the two simple elements there in verse 3 and verse 4. Beginning of verse 3, In Him will I trust. Verse 4, I will call on the Lord. So there comes this determination that's stated verbally, I will trust, I will call. And my oldest son and I recently took a stab at elk hunting in the snow. And uh, we just sort of picked a spot in the middle of nowhere and started hiking up this steep mountain. And uh, I don't know, the snow is a foot plus and on that incline it's knee deep. And uh, I mean the deadfall was unbelievable. And it was piled in snow and I kept trying to pick my way through it and getting trapped in all these crags and brambles and having to climb over log piles. And about the third time I fell face first and bashed my shins, I was wondering what I was doing up there because we sure weren't sneaking up on anything. And eventually after 10 miles worth of effort, we made it maybe a mile if that. It started to get dark and so we started to head back down. But from the top, you could see a little bit better and start to pick a little bit of a way through it. And so we started heading down. And then as I started heading through what looked like a good pathway there, as it was getting dark, I noticed a little piece of orange ribbon on a, on a tree hanging on a branch. I thought, well, that's interesting. And I made it another 100 feet or so, and there's another little piece of orange ribbon hanging. And wind back this way and through the clearing, and, and, uh, and there's another piece of orange ribbon uh, hanging there. You see, somebody had come along, walked that same pathway, and realized, I better mark this so I don't have to climb over the logs next time. They probably came up before the snow, which is the smart thing to do. 
But you know, every time we got to one of those little markers, it was really an assurance of two things. First of all, it was an assurance that somebody had come on the pathway behind us and had marked that way and that we were on the right pathway. What else was it an assurance of? There was more pathway ahead and beyond the brambles and beyond the snow, there's going to be another marker somewhere out there. You know, the, the, the seasons of spiritual victory the Lord gives us, and those come. I'm not saying we have to be in a season of victory to give thanks. We can do that all the time. But the high peaks, the mountains, the times where it seems like the air is clear and the, the vision is strong ahead and, and we're so aware of the Lord's hand of blessing, those times that come are sort of like waypoints on the pathway. They're like a little ribbon tied in the tree. And you get to those, and yes, you're assured, I'm on the right pathway, and the Lord has marked it out for me. It's also an assurance that there's pathway ahead and difficulty ahead. You see, Thanksgiving is not, whew, I'm past that smooth sailing. Thanksgiving is a time to say, well, the Lord's brought me through this. More pathway lies ahead. And it's a time to strengthen my resolve when my vision is clear, that when I get back down in the valley, and when the clouds come back, and when the snow starts to pile up, and when I'm stuck in the brambles in the mire, that I'm going to have the same resolve, I will trust. I will call. Isn't it amazing, when we get in those uh, snowy and dark places, the last thing we feel like doing is trusting and calling out. Why do you think that is? Have you not found that the devil in your flesh will get you to do anything but pray? Haven't you found that to be true? Do you know why? Because that's probably the one thing you ought to be doing. And Paul says, when I would do good, evil's present with me. Uh, speaking of the flesh. So we strengthen our resolve that I will trust, I will call. And both of these, by the way, are stated as what? Choices. You hear that? He doesn't say, I will feel like calling. He doesn't say, I will call when it makes sense. I will call if I can stop thinking about how I failed last time. And your flesh is going to get you to rationalize and get the conversation out of the realm of choice. But listen, the Bible presents it as choice. You realize you don't trust God and you don't pray because you've chosen not to. Nobody can wrest those out of your hands. You have to willingly forfeit them. Remember the old wicked comedian this big line was, the devil made me do it. I guarantee you, he's not laughing anymore. But the devil doesn't make you do it. He can tempt you, but you have to relinquish the keys of the will. And so David's saying, hey, in this mountain peak, I'm going to trust, I'm going to call, and I'm going to strengthen that resolve, and so until I get to the next waypoint, I'm going to lift up my eyes into the hills from whence cometh my salvation. Because guess what? It's coming. David's telling the Lord and himself verbally, I will continue to trust and call, come what may, and no circumstance can ever force me to relinquish those. 
Then there's a rehearsal next of the difficulties that the Lord delivered him from. Have you ever noticed the scriptural writers do not minimize their difficulties? Ever notice that? I mean, the Lord... And by the way, that's true when they're talking directly to God who already knows. Do you know that God does not demand of you to pretend that difficulties aren't difficult? God's not like John Wayne in the sky saying, toughen up, son. Now, you and I both know there's going to come a breaking point. Or you feel like a little child and you want to hide. Put the bravado away. I'm broken. What next? I mean, you think of the language of someone like Job. How about Jeremiah? When's the last time you read Lamentations? I mean, five entire chapters devoted to how he felt when Jerusalem was destroyed. I'm just pouring it out. Or David in multiple Psalms. I mean, listen to these words. I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Does that sound like the same guy that sent a rock crushing through Goliath's skull? It is. Same guy. Listen, David's strength wasn't in his natural bravado. His strength lied in knowing he had a heavenly father who he could tell everything to. Even as a mighty warrior and king, he could say, Lord, I am drowning in my own tears on my couch. And the Lord takes those words and says, those are going to be part of my eternal word. How come? Because we need to know that. Notice the descriptions in verses 5-7. through seven. You can just look at them quickly with your eyes. Look at the nouns. Waves. Floods. Sorrows. Snares. Distress. And then the verbs used. I mean, what did those elements do? They compassed him about. They made him afraid. They prevented him. That means they rushed ahead on the trail and blocked off his escape. So whatever enemies he's talking about, he was terrified. He felt totally surrounded. He felt trapped, isolated, fatigued, and completely powerless. And that's what he tells the Lord. And uh, by the way, he was there for a while sometimes. This wasn't a microwave fix. He makes no attempt to hide that. He just pours it out before the Lord during the trial and after the trial. In verse 7, he says, I cried to my God. I mean, do I have to tell you the word cried there doesn't just mean I leisurely considered throwing a few petitions up to heaven? I was screaming out for my life. And listen, you may not be surrounded by enemy armies, but some of you know what it's like. You feel like the hounds of hell are surrounding you, and they're about to finish you off. You feel like you're losing your mind spiritually. What do you do? First of all, don't think the Lord is pushing you off when that's the case. He's near. 
Don't think He doesn't know your frame. He knows. Cry out to Him. And then there's David rehearsing how God responded to that cry. And this is a lengthy description. We'll just touch on it. But look at beginning in verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And He did hear my voice out of His temple, and my cry did enter into His ears. Now, David's going to use very descriptive poetic language to depict God's reaction towards his prayers. Uh, Verse 7, he notes God heard. I mean, he pictures his prayers going all the way up to a temple in the heavens. And they go straight like a missile into the ears of God. Now, obviously, we know our prayers don't have to travel. But he's describing the fact that God wants to hear. Not just will, but wants to. And then verses 8-14, through that he rose out of his place to do something. Look at verse 8. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth. Devoured coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and did fly and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomfited them. And the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Now David saw some amazing deliverances, but I probably don't have to tell you, David didn't go outside and look up and see all this with physical eyes. What he's depicting is through the eyes of faith, a God who wants to hear and wants to answer. I mean, he pictures God like the, the majesty in the heavens rising up out of his throne and coming roaring down out of the heavens. I mean, you hear the description? The earth shaking, foundations moving, smoke and fire, hot coals kindled, wind, darkness, clouds, thunder, brightness, lightning. It's like the very elements of creation are being moved by God on David's behalf. Now you say, uh, yeah, but uh, not, not for me. When was the last time you stopped and thought about the position in Christ given to you? What does it mean to be in Christ? Does that mean just in His pocket? In Christ is another whole topic, but I'll tell you, it means literally intertwined in Him to rise or to fall with Him. Enjoying the same favor before the Father. The very righteousness you've been given. By the way, there's one you can claim. The Lord is my righteousness. I'm clothed in it like a garment. As we understand we're in Christ, listen, we're going to understand God has the same desire to hear and the same desire to answer. And you can, by faith, picture in your mind God getting up out of His place, coming roaring down to do something about your affliction. It may not be immediately. But friends, can I tell you, if you're a believer in Christ, you're just as secure and precious to God as David. 
You have just as secure of a position, and I can guarantee you, God is every bit as jealous over you. Think about it. All this, uh, the elements around us, the mighty redwood trees, the sunrises we talked about, and this whole universe, stars included, is going to be one big colorful explosion very soon. But if you belong to Christ, you're going to shine in His kingdom forever. You think you're not the apple of His eye? I mean, he pictures David, <clears throat> David does, in verse 15, that God suddenly intervened. Verse 18, He delivered. And then verse 20, look at verse 20. He brought me forth also into a large place. What is it that makes a large place seem wonderful? When you've been in a small one. We hear the goofy song, it's a small world after all, but sometimes when the world feels about the size of a thimble and you're crammed in it and getting crushed like you're in a vice, it's not something you're happy about. So David felt like he was being crushed in the wine press. And he says, you know what? Eventually though, beyond the blackness, the Lord brought me out into a large place. Out into the open air. And maybe you're in between markers right now. In between waypoints, it feels like. Can I tell you, you're going to come out of the tunnel. I guarantee you, you're going to come out of the tunnel if you're, if you're in Christ. How about considering your own salvation? I mean, what did God do on your behalf? Can you picture? Here's this poor, needy sinner. And some way or another it dawned on your mind that you were doomed to destruction. And through a supernatural work of God, you became convinced that you were so wretched, you deserved the wrath of God for every sin you've ever committed. It came upon your mind you had no excuse. That the law of God came and it boxed you in, it hemmed you in, and it shut your mouth. And all the comparisons went away. And all the excuses went away. And all the self-righteousness, yeah, but I, yeah, but I, it was gone. Oh, and you realized, there's no hope for you. I can't save myself. I can't intervene in my life. I can't give myself righteousness. And what happened? Cry out to Him. What did he do? He rises up out of his place. He comes roaring down. You see, you weren't going to him. He was coming to you. If you doubt that, you open up the Gospel record and you see God come down as a man. You take a good long look at Calvary and see Him bleeding there on your behalf. And you see the wrath of God poured out on Him for your sin. Oh, the Lord took you out of that vice and He brought you forth into a large place, didn't He? He showed you there is hope. That God's not just a judge. He's a friend. He's a God of goodwill. 
Can I ask you something? If God was so disposed to come to your rescue when you were that evil, what makes you think He doesn't want to come to your rescue when you've been put in Christ? You see, that's why Paul asks what he does in Romans 8. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It wouldn't make any sense for God to give blessings when we're lost and then just take them away. You see, that's not how he is. Here's another thing David understands. This is difficult. I think we recoil from this. Uh, look what he says in verse 25. Therefore the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyesight. Now, when you read that, I guarantee if you're a real Christian, you probably take a step back and say, I'm not going to say that. But I think we have to understand what David's saying. Oh, by the way, David's the same one that wrote Psalm 51. Read that, read that sometime if you think David was convinced how terrific he was. And David's not speaking self-righteousness. He's not getting on a soapbox to tell all the world how wonderful David was. But here's what he did understand. As a vile sinner, I am an enemy of God and I need His righteousness. And in that sense, there is none righteous... I can do nothing to earn my salvation. I can do no ritual. I can't be dunked in water. I can't cry enough tears. Salvation is merely accepting the righteousness that God will freely give me without merit on my part. If salvation is not 100% free, you are dead in your sins and you are hell bound. If you don't like that, you can take that up with God. But... Having been given his righteousness, having been given a standing with him, tell me something. Is your default mechanism in your mind that when God looks at you, all he sees is the negative? Or do you understand God sees the righteousness, practical righteousness that's growing as his child? See, that's what David's emphasizing. He's saying, I've been walking with God. And you know what? The Lord sees it. Does the Lord deal with sin? Yes. Can I fellowship with Him while I'm regarding iniquity in my heart? No. Do you understand something? Every time you stood for truth, every prayer you've ever offered, every time you've shared the gospel with somebody in the will of God, even if they cussed you out, Every time you parents stood for truth in your home, every time you dads teach your children the Word of God, not one of those is forgotten by God. You may have forgotten it, but I guarantee you He didn't. And David's expressing something. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Friends, listen, it is very crushing when you view God as only seeing you as negative. That's not what the Bible teaches for the Christian. It will crush you. It will sap you of hope. You'll wake up every day under gloomy skies. You see, what you need is to understand more of your position in Christ, if that's you. That's not how God looks at the believer. Not even close. David's saying, the Lord saw 
where I stood for truth. The Lord saw where I walked uprightly. How about this? Rehearsing to himself and to God the glorious prospect for whatever comes in the future because of the Lord's presence. Verse 29. For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. I think of the words of of Micah. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Amen. You see, he's saying, I know that God's going to give illumination, guidance, even in total blackness. Look at verse 30. Boldness. By thee I have run through a troop. By my God have I leaped over a wall. He's picturing the, the, the will of God is up here and there's this big wall around it and a whole bunch of demonic troops in the way. And David says, oh yeah? I'm running right through that army and I'm jumping over that wall and if I can't jump the wall, I'm going through it. What do you think it means when it says the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force? It doesn't mean put up your dukes. It's saying have a holy violence about seizing the promises of God and saying I will follow Him. I will listen. I will trust. I will call. And God will be exactly who He says He is. Verse 31, clarity. As for God, His way is perfect. Not satisfactory. Perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. Uh, Is the Bible trustworthy? Oh boy. Generation upon generation will attest to that. Protection, there's the word again. He is our buckler as we go forth, our shield as we go forth into uh, the war. Verse 32, stability, standing on the only rock. Verse 33, strength and power. Uh, Fortified walls for defense, that's the word strength, and ability to accomplish what is humanly impossible. Uh, You think you're called to preach the gospel in human energy? Here now, let's just take a course in salesmanship and I'll show you how to have ten converts by month's end. Oh, curse that thinking. We learn to wrestle with God in prayer. We learn to admit our total lack of power and to cry out for it. Oh, boy. Will God work through a vessel like that? Verse 34, He makes my feet like hind's feet, like deer's feet. I think the picture is of God giving desire. You ever feel sluggish in your obedience? He's saying as I walk with God, He's going to give us swiftness and agility and obedience and instantaneous reaction to do His will. Verse 35. He teaches my hands to war. I realize David fought physical Philistines. Why do you think God tells us to put on spiritual armor? You ever feel like your flesh is such an indwelling demonic monster? You cannot avoid the temptation. You cannot conquer the temptation. By the way, side note, I really think if you ask more, most Christians this day and age, how do you conquer temptation? They're going to give you a wrong answer. 
You ought to make a beeline from that question to Romans 6. That's where the answer is. But listen, God wants to teach you to fight. Not people. He wants to teach you to fight spiritual enemies. He wants to teach you to fight your own nature and to overcome it. You believe God teaches your hands, like David says elsewhere, my hands to war and my fingers to fight? He says a bow of steel's broken. You ever feel like some temptation you can't gain the victory over is like a big steel barrier? David's saying, oh, guess what? That's going to get broken. Because why? My God will instruct me and teach me how to fight. But listen, you better come the way he says. He's not going to invent a different way for you. We've got to know his word. Verse 36, Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation. Uh, interesting. Uh, God himself is the shield in verse 31. And then David says, God's given me the shield of salvation. Knowing the Lord's desire and ability to save him was itself like a shield against an attack. Is that not true? Tell me, when you lose sight of the Lord's goodwill towards you, does that not make your defenses buckle? Why do you think there's such satanic attack on the mind to make you think wrong about God? That's why. The Christian life's lived in the mind. What we do out here is a result of this battlefield right here. We'll close there. We can't do the whole psalm. But the end of verse 36 I find absolutely amazing. And thy gentleness hath made me great. God has been depicted in this psalm as mighty instruments of war, bedrock, tower, power, strength, riding in a cherub amid smoke and lightning and thunder, firing arrows and lightning at his enemies, shaking the very foundations of the earth while men tremble in fear and scatter for shelter. But what was really behind David's greatness? He feared God to be sure. He knew something of the sting of his discipline and the weight of conviction and the fruits of his own failure. But behind all that, he was convinced of God's goodwill towards him. Uh, you remember when Moses asked God, show me thy glory? Oh, what a weighty passage that is in Exodus 34. But it's interesting what takes place. Moses asked the Lord, show me thy glory. Glory is that which makes someone unique. Moses is asking for a fuller understanding of God. Moses wants a vision. He wants a sight. God gives him a name. The Lord makes His glory pass by and it says, He declared the name of the Lord. What was that name even to Moses the lawgiver? The Lord. That's the covenant keeper. The Lord God. Merciful and gracious. Long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All three words for man's failure. 
just in case we didn't really believe him. Moses wanted a vision. He wanted a sight. God says, I'll give you a name. I am merciful. I am gracious. I want to forgive. I want to be near to my creation. So much so that eventually God was going to step down veiled in flesh to die for the likes of you and I. Do you see the Lord as gentle? Oh, there's a side. He ought to be feared. Yes, yes, yes. But do you see Him as tender? I mean, do you see God as not wanting to break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax? You see the way Jesus dealt with people in the Gospels. Those two were recorded for a reason. How did He treat those that were broken down and really, really wanting direction? Did He come to them with a bat? Friends, Jesus ripped to shreds the insincere religious hypocrite. But the most vile sinner who showed the door open even a little to the truth, they got it. God is sincere. He's not speaking in a dark place, saying, seek ye me in vain. Oh no. His desire towards us is good. Is He not worthy of our expressions of joy? And friends, listen, these things we talked about can be done anytime. I firmly believe the most precious offerings to God are when you praise Him like this when you're in total blackness. It doesn't feel right. I don't see it right. I can't rationalize out of it. I don't get it. But here's what I know. God is my... What? Fill in the blank. Start there. Out of that comes a resolve. Out of that comes pouring out to God exactly how bad things are. And it's okay. Use the most descriptive language you can. It's good for you. You don't need to go down to some you know, guy's couch and lay down and look at ink blotches and tell him what you see. Go to the Lord and pour it out. Tell him all about it. So I want to challenge us this week. Make this a time of real thanksgiving. Not just, oh Lord, thank you for the turkey. Well, that's great. I thank God for turkey too. And pie and yams. I'm working on thanking Him for yams. But I'll, I'll try. But seriously, let's not just make it thank you. Remember who He is to you. Tell Him about it. Oh, it's so good for us, and it brings Him glory. Have you failed? One says, well, I've not been where I should have been. Can I remind you something? Between the first time David wrote these words, and when he brings them up decades later, what happened? There was failure. There was lots of failure. But David comes out of that and he's still, still praising God for exactly who He is. 
You know, you go into your times of failure, but can I remind you the Lord isn't changing? And you come out, oh, there may be some repercussions. But do you know as a Christian, one of the repercussions for sin is never God removing His affection for you? You know that? Some of you have been raised by parents maybe that when they punished you, it was like the relationship was severed or they stormed off and slammed doors and made you feel like you had to do penance for a week. God is not like that. He's not like that. Friends, listen, if you are in an area of sin and you know it, you can deal with it now. Set your feelings aside and take the Word of God that He's faithful and just to forgive you when you come and confess it. And you know what happens? You're back in fellowship with Him. Now. His affection for you, oh, it never changed. His goodwill towards you, oh, it never changed. David comes out after the adultery and after the murder and all the other stupid things. And he's still able to say, God's there. His gentleness has made me great. I know most of you very well. Are you sitting here? You know your sins aren't forgiven. Or are you sitting here trusting in something that the Bible says doesn't forgive sin? All those things are legion today. They're everywhere. There's all kinds of idols. There's all kinds of admixtures to grace. Friends, listen. If you were not saved by the 100% pure grace of God based on no merit of your own, If you can't say God set His affection on me for reasons I don't even understand, but it certainly wasn't because I deserve it, there's something severely wrong with your soul still. You see, the real Christian has nothing to brag about. I went forward. I ate the bread. I put money in the plate. I had water sprinkled on me or I was dunked and so on. So what? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Friends, that's the determining question on Judgment Day. That's how you get in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You indeed do not change. And Lord, I ask for myself and for all of us corporately, Lord, forgive us for our tendency to think thoughts that are so unworthy of You. Lord, forgive us for slandering your character at doubting that you want to hear and answer prayer. Doubting that you are full of goodwill. Doubting that you really want to forgive. Doubting that you will answer. Doubting that you care. Lord, we can't even, we can't even grasp how insulting that is to you. And Lord, even there you don't incinerate us and you remember our frame that we are dust, but help us, Lord to discipline our minds, to think according to Your Word so that our thoughts would be more worthy of You. And Lord, out of those thoughts that are worthy of You, that we would give praise and thanksgiving verbally, in season and out, mountaintop or valley, when we feel like we understand and when we are so boxed in, we're terrified. Help us to see You above it all. Not just powerful, 
not just terrifying and holy, but God condescending to us, knowing our frame, full of goodwill with the gentleness that wants to make us great. Father, thank you for revealing us yourself, which is the greatest gift man could ever receive. In Jesus' name, amen.